Good morning, Door of Hope family. Um, I'm Shelly. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. Um, I'm going to read the scripture this morning, which is Mark 2, 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him, and as he reclined at the table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we just thank you for who you are, God. We thank you that you are a God of mercy and of justice and of love. Um, we thank you that you sit with us where we are. Um, would you just renew us this morning? And would you just be with Cameron as he delivers your word? God, help us to have ears to hear. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. My name's Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. I keep forgetting my glass. My eyes are getting worse and worse. I keep forgetting to bring my glasses up here and one of these days, it's going to make for an awkward moment for us all, but not today, not today. Um, it's really good to be with you all. I, I just want to mention something, kind of a practical thing. We don't usually bring up this stuff, but um, something that was at least exciting to me, I hope it's exciting to you. Um, uh, a few weeks ago, the CDC recently updated their kind of COVID guidance stuff around uh, you know, what's, what's safe and what isn't and from their perspective. Um, and they mentioned that for, for anyone uh, who's been vaccinated, I, I feel like this is kind of obvious, but it's good to hear it from them. Um, anyone who's been vaccinated, it is safe to return to in-person worship gatherings, um, which, you know, a lot of you have already been here before that declaration, as I have. Uh, but to me, that's just an encouraging sign and, a, and a, one of those key notes, kind of, kind of key forks in the road along the long journey back to some kind of normalcy as it relates to this stuff. So uh, I hope you're encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by that. Um, I'm getting my second vaccine shot Tuesday. Um, so I'm going to be like a god up here. <laughs> stupid. Uh, but I probably will not get a severe case of COVID. I'm certain of that. So that's great. Um, so there you go. Uh, thanks, CDC. Um, to jump into the sermon, I, I had this kind of funny realization. I don't remember when it was, maybe in college, but um, I've been a big movie guy most, most of my adult and adult life, child life as well. Um, and love a good story, you know, love, love a good superhero story as well. Um, and I, there was this moment of realization, though, I can't remember what, I can't even, I should have thought harder to think what films kind of triggered this for me, but I realized the fact that I had always, every time I'd enjoyed, like, let's just take Batman. I love Batman. I'm going to use Batman as sermon illustrations from time to time. You're going to all have to get comfortable with it. Um, but maybe it was a Batman movie or something, but I used to identify so much with Batman in those films, like as the, the unflailing hero who's always, you know, on the right side of things. Um, especially the versions of the story that were, like, out when I was a kid. Um, 
And there's, there's, there was a pain in realizing that every time I assumed that I was kind of an analog for the hero of the story, like that that was actually misguided and kind of naive. And as I've gotten older, I've come to realize like most of these stories, if I were actually inserted into them, I'm probably like more like the complacent person who's kind of keeping justice at bay or who doesn't care, maybe sometimes the like evil aggressor that Batman obviously ought to have a word with at some point. Um, I think we all do that with, with whatever story we're, we're inclined to view ourselves in, as in the heroic role. We're inclined to view ourselves as the one who obviously would have made the right and the good and the just choice given the situation. But, most of, but what lots of these movies are doing, even, especially if they're thoughtful ones, is actually just the opposite. It's trying to get us to see uh, that we are, in fact, probably not those people. <laughs> We're probably sitting in the other seat. Um, I feel like this story, uh, and I'm sure either this particular story or one of the many, many like it in the New Testament, um, you've, you've come across before, but, but I, I, I'm willing to bet that for many of us, when we, in, when we encounter it, we, we do this kind of thing with it. We put ourselves in kind of the heroic side or maybe in Jesus' shoes. We identify with Jesus. We, we, we look at him and we say, yeah, what he's doing, that's right. That's what I would do. Uh, and I think that's probably a load of bull <laughs> for most of us. Um, let's jump into it and let's, let's see if you agree. Let's see if you agree. I want to just read the first two verses to start. It says, and he, that's Jesus, went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And to note here, I mean, if, if you've been tracking with us in, in our time through the Gospel of Mark, you, you, you'll note that that crowd that's coming out to him, that's kind of the mode that Jesus has been in now for uh, the last, you know, chapter or so of the book. As, as he's teaching and as he's performing miracles, the fame about him is growing. He's trying to keep people to keep it on the down low as he's healing people, but word's getting out. There's this amazing guy with these authoritative teachings, and he has authority over demons, and he has authority to heal even a leper uh, instantaneously. And people are getting more and more interested, and he's driven more and more out of kind of the center of society. He's having to like stay outside of town if he wants to have any kind of peace, but the crowds are even coming to find him out again by the sea. So Jesus is just getting pressed in on by the crowds, but Jesus teaches. And he told us uh, just, just a story or two ago, the purpose, the, the main function of his time, of his three years of public ministry was going to be to teaching, to teach, of course, leading up to the cross. Um, and so that's what he's doing. He's teaching. Um, He's back on that central mission, but, but he sees this tax collector in verse 14. As he passed by, he, he saw this man, Levi, sitting at the tax booth. So he's a, he's a tax collector um, and says, follow me. And I'm sure you've, if you've been a Christian or around Christians any amount of time, you've probably got a category for the tax collector. Probably heard this explained, well, these are bad guys, the lowest of the low. Uh, so we're just, we're going to do it again. <laughs> We need, to, we need to get this. We need to get this. Um, a tax collector um, was a traitor, a traitor to his Jewish peers. 
That, that's the fundamental way you can think of a tax collector. If you remember the kind of the socio-political situation and in Israel at this time, is they had just been passed around from the time they went into exile to Babylon uh, and Assyria. They had been under the thumb or the, or the boot of a different ancient oppressive empire. One after the other. It was Babylon for a while. It's Persia for a while. It's Greece for a while. It's Rome now. So Rome is the, is the new big dog in town who has subjugated Israel, is occupying their land, and they've got all these little arrangements. So in this region, there's, there's one of the Herods uh, who is kind of given, given authority to kind of be an under king under the Roman emperor uh, to kind of, you know, conduct business as long as you don't contradict the Roman agenda. You guys can have everything. So the Jews, lots of the Jews were really, really frustrated that we're now run by this essentially Roman puppet king uh, who is doing all kinds of stuff in Rome's interest, not in Jerusalem's interest or Israel's interest. Uh, and not only that, here's where the tax collector comes in. The tax collector is essentially collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman oppressors uh, amongst his own people. So this is, this is a serious traitor. And every time someone saw a tax collector, it was just a personal reminder of this gigantic empire that was oppressing them and dictating what they could and couldn't do. They're a personal reminder of their Roman overlords. Every time you saw a tax collector. He was probably... Levi he's probably functioned something like a, uh, like a customs officer. He had a, a booth there that as people passed by, he would tax them, and usually taxing like their produce or whatever. If they had a car to sell, he'd tax. There were taxes for all kinds of things, but he's probably taking their, their goods as they came by. And not only that, um, tax collectors, do you, know, do you know how they made their money? It wasn't that they got a percentage or whatever if they were, uh, of whatever they taxed. They actually made their money by choosing to tax whatever they wanted, as long as they met their quota, they got to keep whatever was on top of that. So they're just encouraged to extort and extort and extort and go above and beyond what the person's actual taxes were, that were already extravagant, and to add on top of that to benefit themselves. And they got really wealthy most of the time. And the average, the average Israelite had no recourse in the face of like this, this tax guy who can just take literally whatever he wants. They had no recourse if they didn't like it. So that's the tax collector. They are an impressor themselves. They're thieves amongst their people, and they're like a mole or like a betrayer of their people in the truest sense of the word on behalf of Rome. So what does Jesus do when he sees this guy? He walks right up to him, and he says, follow me. He says, follow me. Um, and there's, there's some debate, we should mention that there's some debate about whether this Levi, uh, I, I think the case is pretty strong, that this is actually uh, Matthew, the tax collector, who's mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, um, who, yeah, is one of Jesus' inner core 12. Um, there, we won't get into why that's debated. Uh, he goes by the name Levi here. Perhaps the same guy goes by the name Matthew in the Gospel according to Matthew and so on. Um, but it's perhaps the same guy. Either way, Jesus calls this man to follow him. He calls this man to follow him, to, 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 to leave what's there and to come after Jesus. And that word follow involves all kinds of risk and cost. When Jesus says, follow me, he literally means leave what you're doing and come after me. And, and one of the immediate costs of this guy leaving his tax post was that like, 
there was always someone else waiting in the wing. It's like, it's kind of like a corner, like a busy street intersection. If you, there's like a panhandler there, I don't know if you've ever seen this, there can be like turf wars break out over who gets to stand there with the sign and collect money, especially if it's a really like popular intersection. And that's kind of this idea. If he was to leave this post, there would be tons of people just waiting in the wing to go and assume that post and take ownership of it. So he's, he's not going to get his job back if he leaves to follow after Jesus. That's what Jesus calls him to, probably purposefully. His career was over. Um, and so Jesus, Jesus calls this guy who has probably extorted the other disciples that are traveling with Jesus. You think about that? Like Peter and Andrew had probably had fish stolen from this guy if they've passed through. And Jesus says, come and follow me. And so uh, I don't know uh, who, who, who a good analog is for you. It's probably different. But to let the scandal of that, word, of that phrase, follow me, hit you, I seriously want you to just pause for a second and imagine like, who would be the person or the group of people that you have the absolute least amount of tolerance for. And I can't answer that for you. I'd imagine with 50, 60 people in this room, we'd probably get 60 different answers, you know, about who that is. But I want you to seriously imagine right now, who is the person that if Jesus called them and sat them right next to you in that whatever chair, six feet apart from you, put them right there that would just offend you, that would upset you, that you'd be scathing angry. Maybe it's an individual, someone who's wronged you. Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe it's a minority group. Maybe it's a majority group. But imagine Jesus going to that person or a person from that group, walking right up to them and inviting him into his inner circle and seating them right next to you here today. Now, how do you feel? How does that feel? That's what this is. That's what this is. And Levi rose and he did follow Jesus. He did go after Jesus. And this thing, the scandal of this moment, is not just some one-off occurrence, like, wow, that was an interesting story that Jesus did that weird thing that one time. No, it, it, immediately the next verse makes us see this is, this is the character of Jesus' ministry. As he reclined at table in his house, that's probably Levi's house, so Jesus goes to Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners. So now there's a bunch of them. And not just tax collectors, but other kinds of sinners were re reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of these sorts of people who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the scribes here... They kind of fill, they're kind of the audience analog here. Um, anyone who is tuned into these social dynamics, which all of us are just a little bit more now, would be going, what, why? What is this? They're puzzled. And they're asking the disciples, why does your teacher defile himself by sitting and hanging out with these unclean people? Why does he offer that kind of intimacy to that kind of people? That's what they're asking. Um, and we have to, you know, Pharisees, they become kind of the punching bag amongst Christians. We, we always assume the worst. We don't really treat them as like real humans and, and like rounded characters in these stories, which I think, I think they are and they're meant to be taken as. We kind of assume they're just these 
utterly hardened, grotesquely sort of self-righteous religious caricatures. But, but the Pharisees were a group of people who wanted, it with, I think with good intention, to call the average Israelite back to serious covenant faithfulness to the covenant that God had given this people. And they, they wanted all the people to live out the faithfulness to the covenant. And they had good reason to be skeptical of and frustrated with those who flagrantly violated the commands of God. Remember, the whole reason they've been in exile is because they haven't been faithful to the covenant. Maybe if we can get a critical mass of people to start taking the, the words of God seriously, our fortunes will change. And God will bless us. That's a good goal. That's a good goal. Plenty of bad we could say about these guys as well, and we're going we're gonna to get there over the course of Mark, but I don't want you to write them off as just sort of like these clearly off-the-plot off sort of characters who have nothing but evil in their hearts. That's not who they were. They're looking at this situation, and they see what we, we strain to see a little bit, that to share a meal in someone's home was one of the most intimate acts you could do. In this culture, it was an intimate bonding experience, and many people understood the act of eating together to be a declaration of acceptance of that person. And I think that's exactly what Jesus intends here. I accept these people. I accept them. Yes, that's why I'm eating in their home with them and have brought my disciples in with them as well. Um, I tried to think of an analog to something that might communicate this kind of... Uh, this kind of intimacy, I thought, I don't know. I remember, remember like when you were a kid and you'd prick your fingers and become like blood brothers. In the age of COVID especially, you're like, that's horrifying. Uh, but like now we're united. Okay, it's not quite that. Maybe it's the intimacy of, of seeing your friend in their own homemade Batman costume. I don't know. Some of you have seen that. Um, <laughs> some of you have seen that. I'm sorry. Um, no, in the end, I, I think that, I think that I think the cultural distance maybe isn't as great. When you invite someone into your table in your home and you feed them and you get to know them and you listen to them and you let them hang out with your children if you have any and you let them like enjoy what you have and you make them feel truly comfortable, what does that? There's, there's nothing. That communicates, I accept you. <laughs> I love you. I'm interested in you. I want to be with you. I want you in my life to some degree or another. I think, I, think, I think our culture's maybe not quite as extreme, but I think it's similar. And sadly, many of us have missed out on the intimacy of that over this last year, and it's hard. It's hard to not have that kind of forum to like truly be hospitable towards someone you care about or want to get to know. Um, so there you go. It's the intimacy of the shared meal. That's what the Pharisees are reacting to. And then it's the intimacy with these people in particular. We've already talked about tax collectors. So it turns out it's not just Levi. It's a whole gang of tax collectors that are coming to hang out with Jesus and to eat with him. And not just that. It's this group of people that they just refer to as sinners. And, uh, of course, theologically, we go, well, that's everyone. Everyone's a sinner. Yes, that, that's correct. But they had a specific meaning in mind. These were people who lived totally outside of the sort of adherence to the Jewish religious system. Uh, they just kind of flagrantly made no effort to keep the law, um, either out of willful rejection or, in some cases, just simple ignorance. Like people who weren't trained in the religion, they don't know. They haven't been, no one's sought them out to kind of bring them into the fold and 
So it's either a willful rejection of it or just, I had no chance to know what was going on, what God wanted, what he required of me here. And we note that Jesus found a particularly receptive ear amongst these people, tax collectors and sinners. Uh, Where's the phrase there? Verse 15, for there were many of these folks who followed him. There were many who followed him. These people. So, we hear something like this, and again, I imagine this hits us quite a bit differently than it hit the original hearers, certainly the original people who were observing this act in history from Jesus. Um, this question, why does Jesus eat with those people? I don't think any of us in this room would think to ask that question right now. Um, I think, and I think one of the reasons is because we do live in the U.S., in Portland, we live in a post-Christian society. Um, and post-Christian cultures like ours, uh, whether they realize it or not, and oftentimes they don't, they, they've absorbed all kinds of sort of cultural values, even moral values, uh, from, from the scriptures, from the teachings of Jesus. There is no more influential religious teacher in history than Jesus across culture and time. Um, and, and where we sit, we, we, we have a culture that has absorbed many of those things, but what we've kind of done is we've kind of cut, cut those values at the root, you know? And so it's like a flower <laughs> that's been, you, you cut it, it looks beautiful, you set it in the vase, and then what happens? What happens? It starts to wilt, yeah. And that's, that's where we are probably in all of, like any culture, that anything that starts with, with Jesus or some idea that, that he propagated but wants to reject his lordship, wants to reject all the implications of what it teaches, wants to reject uh, full-throated, full-hearted faithfulness to it, or even begins to go, I want that thing, but I don't want the king who gave the order. It wilts. And we're probably witnessing, like, across <laughs> all post-Christian culture, like, a dramatic speeding of much of that, that wilting process. But nonetheless, we, we've been raised in a culture to our benefit that says, yes, like, look, um, anyone, like, the outsider ought to be welcomed. That's an objectively true statement. But that statement's now been severed from any kind of true self-aware relationship to Jesus and it's mutating. Um, compassion for the religious outsider, I think, is a deep culture that, like a deep cultural value that is impressed upon us, and it's good for us that it is. Um, we read this story, and we take it, we, here's what we do, we take it for granted that this is just what good people do, Jesus. Like, we welcome the religious outsider. We stand up for the one that the religious bullies are sort of like making feel inferior or whatever. Um, but the power and the scandal of this story is not that Jesus is just doing what any decent person would do in pursuing an innocent victim, because A, that was a pretty novel idea until Jesus came onto the scene. But secondary, secondarily, it's not, just that, it's not that he's pursuing an innocent victim, it's that he's pursuing an oppressor and a thief and a traitor. That's who Jesus is going after. 
And that's harder for us to swallow if we can really see it for what it is. And this theme from Mark emerges here. It's going to emerge, emerge again and again, this idea that, that the people who should be most attuned to the heart of God, in this story it's the Pharisees, the, ones who, the scribes, the ones who are experts in the law, they end up asking these questions. And as we go throughout Mark, we're going to see them just ask questions again and again. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus do this? It's like everything Jesus does perplexes them, although he is God in the flesh standing in front of them. They're like, I don't get it. I have no idea what this guy's up to. But the ones who you would least expect to see and savor and desire the God of the universe, they come in close. And they, re- they, re- <laughs> they recline with him. They're comfortable. They let down their guard. They kick up their feet. They find a home amongst him. That's significant. So the chattering, you know, why is Jesus? These guys are grumbling and they're asking the disciples. Jesus hears them. I just, I love these scenes where it's like, you just imagine Jesus kind of like, you're talking about me, you're talking about me. Uh, So he says to them, listen, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? He says, that's the whole reason I came. That's the reason I came. That's the heart of God from page one of the Bible onward. Have you read it? Of course the Messiah is going to come for the sick. Of course the Messiah is going to come for the sinner. And his answer is probably a bit tongue-in-cheek here. He's not, I don't think Jesus is saying, you guys, are, you guys are clearly healthy. You're not in need of my services. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, if you don't think you're in need of me, go do your own thing. <laughs> I came for the people who are actually going to be receptive to this, who actually can recognize their need. I'm not going to try to operate on someone who's kicking me and flailing and thinks that what I have to offer is, is, is foolish. I've come for the one who will lay out on the table and let me do my work. Which is it with you guys? There are people who in either of their ignorance or their arrogance will think they have no need of the healing that Jesus offers. And I'm guessing that's probably all of us. Even now, even if you've been following Jesus for 10 years, there's probably some area of your life where you're like, I don't need it. I don't need that, Jesus. I don't want what you have to offer there. I'm good on this thing. I'll give you this, 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 and this. You cannot have this. And Jesus' response here to these folks, it's almost like this. It's like, that's okay. You don't want what I have to offer. Those who will recognize their need, they're the, ones I'm, they're the ones I'm interested in. You can stay on that. I would love for you to come in and receive this. But if you won't, there are plenty of people here. Who? These tax collectors and sinners who will take me up on it. That's the story here, Briefly. We could talk for hours about this, but I just want to wrap up with a few implications for us. Um, just spell it out for us. Number one, number one is that sin is serious. Um, our, our culture has, again, I think this is probably a fruit of, of Christian doctrine that's been severed and is wilting, 
It's taken really good ideas around the Imago Dei, the image of God, the idea that there is not a person who ever has been born or ever will be born who is not indwelt with the image, not indwelt, made in the image and likeness of God. Not one person. No matter what they do, no matter what they look like, no matter where they're from, everyone carries the image of God and has a, a, an indispensable dignity and worth and value that the Son of God would die to save. But we need to hold that. We need to hold that dearly and think about it daily. But there's an idea that's, that, that, where that's mutated into basically people are perfect and the only reason people ever you know, stumble or, or, or do evil things or whatever is because culture has kind of corrupted them. If they could just be left to their own devices. People are inherently good. That's not the biblical story either. And I don't think history bears that out. Um, our culture would, would train us to see this story and see that this tax collector was mischaracterized by everybody. Why are you calling him a sinner? Why are you calling these people sinners? Like, there's nothing wrong with, it. There's nothing wrong with this tax collector. Um, we might be led to interpret the story as something like, look, what Jesus, what's going on is Jesus sees um, that this tax collector isn't really a sinner in need of salvation. He has all he needs inside of himself. So Jesus just kind of clears up the misconceptions and helps him find his own self-worth and all that kind of stuff. Um, no. <laughs> that's, that's not what Jesus says or does here. So actually, to understand the Bible or its central figure, which is, of course, Jesus at all, we need to understand how it views sin. We need a solid harmartiology in the, word, in the words of the theologians. Um, I think for many of us, the, the, the gravity of the concept of sin is lost on us because we probably, we tend to view it as kind of arbitrary. Like, why does God call some things sin and not other things? Is there any kind of coherence? Is there any logic to this? And the answer is yes. Like, God, God is not arbitrary. Sin is not defined as such just because God wants to be a buzzkill. You ever think that? I think that all the time. I confess to you. I'm like, why does God care about this? Seems like he does because I read the Bible, but I do not understand why. Over time, I, I've, my heart has softened on that. It's, I've, I've come to realize imperfectly that it's just the opposite. The Bible claims God is both all-knowing and all-good, and from that perfect vantage point, there is no higher vantage point to get. And even as, with the knowledge of everything, as our very creator, he makes, he marks everything, everything that brings unnecessary suffering, everything that wrecks the shalom or peace that he provides in the world, everything that harms and dehumanizes, everything that introduces discord between people and people or between people and God, he marks all that stuff off as sin. Because they end in death. And, and when we don't understand why a particular sin is sin, uh, that's what we're not going to all the time, we can trust that he does. That he's not capricious. He's not just a buzzkill. He's not arbitrary. There must be some good reason why he, why he says that. And we can, we can <laughs> try to stand on our own two feet and say, we know better. That's a scary place to be, though looking down the God of the universe. 
When the Bible talks about sin and its effects, it, it, it talks about those effects in a number of ways, but, but at a minimum, it tells us everyone sins, that sinfulness is corrosive to us. The verdict is guilty. <laughs> We're all guilty because of it. The sickness it produces is terminal, and the practical results are devastating. In fact, every single time you look out, you turn on your news, and you see some horrific act of injustice, it's not just, ah, that's crazy. It's sin. It is sin. And the, reason, the, the hatred that you have every time you see one of these things is the same hatred God has. You're, you don't stand in contrast to him going, God, look, we should care about this stuff. He's going, exactly. That's why I want to nip it at the heart before it ever bleeds out into a mass shooting or whatever. He cares more than we do. <laughs> but we have the arrogance to stand and go, well, I think, I think we should let this one slide, God. God is not playing a game with sin. Sin is real and it's tragic and it's the source of all tragedy. Literally, that's what the Bible claims. Sin is the source of all tragedy in this world. It's point number one. Sin is real. It's egregious. Point number two, let's just make it personal. Your sin... <laughs> is real and egregious. My sin is real and egregious. You nor I are the exception to, all, to the rule I just laid out. If the Bible is true, if it's right about this, I think it is, we are not the exceptions. Your sickness and mine and your guilt and mine are clear and your need and my need of a physician savior is just as severe, even as just as severe as these sinners and tax collectors who desperately need it. That's bad news. Let's do another one, number three. Jesus loves you. <laughs> Jesus loves the most offensive ones to love. To the point where sometimes it starts to sound like bad news. Again, we go, we, really? You would welcome that person or those people or people who do this? And his answer is yes. If they will receive me, I will receive them. Jesus came, he tells us here, for the expressed purpose to seek and save the lost, to redeem sinners, to befriend them, to heal them, to welcome them, to bring them into his family, to promise them an eternal future in his kingdom. And no one is too far gone. We've all probably got, we probably wouldn't put it this way, someone, somewhere, some line, that once you cross that, there is no turning back, and it is not so with Jesus. No one is too far gone. Not Levi the tax collector, not the thief on the cross, not the Roman soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross as he called out to the Father to forgive them. Not Saul the stoner, or killer, nor stoners, for that matter, of any stripe. Saul, the murderer of Christians, no one. No one. That's the gospel. That's the radical grace of the God who forgives that we get just an incarnated picture of in this story. He loves the most offensive ones to love, and if he loves them, that means Jesus loves you, because you're offensive to love. <laughs> I am. I am. I don't know most of you super well. don't know some of you at all. I'll just speak for myself. I'm offensive to love. There's ugly stuff in here. I've done things I have deep shame for that I hope I can 
kind of unhitch from in this life, it might take into eternity future. It might take the direct presence of Jesus to get that stuff off my back. Nonetheless, Jesus loves me and Jesus loves you. And no matter the deepest, darkest secret you harbor, no matter the worst thing you've ever done, he sees the depth of your sin more clearly than you ever will. But through his spirit, even today, he comes right up to you just like Levi and he says, follow me. I don't care who it offends. Follow me. I forgive you. Come eat with me. Have you said yes to that? Probably most of you have. You're here at church during the pandemic. Probably a follower of Jesus. Have you said yes? Then praise God. Because he says yes right back to you. Forever. And if you haven't, say yes. There's nothing else to do. (laughs) There's nothing else to do. Receive the love that he has for you, the grace he has for you. And then you get invited. And this, funny, this eating thing, it's not just, that, even that's not a one-off story. Have you read in the, the, the prophetic and the apocalyptic literature, the, 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 the event we have coming for us is a great feast that Jesus is hosting. And who's sitting there in the new heavens and the new earth? It's all these sinners and tax collectors and you and me. Feasting with the Lord intimately. But no one there will be going, like, why is he eating with those people? We'll all just be celebrating the fact that he's so good to us and he will continue to be good to us forever, to eternity future. That is a microcosm of life in the kingdom. The sinners and the tax collectors and who knows who, only God knows who, eating with him, enjoying his presence celebrating, feasting. That's something to look forward to, my friends. I think. One more. If you are Jesus' disciple, what this story implicates us in is the call to go and do likewise. This is for you, but this is for Whoever those people are that you think would never respond to Jesus or could never respond to Jesus or, or maybe that Jesus isn't interested in, he is. He is. And we are to go and to welcome them into our homes, into our tables, and tell them about the goodness of this Lord who has saved us and to risk offending our friends <laughs> and our families, our co-workers, people who think we ought to be more careful with the company we keep. Like Jesus, as his ambassadors, as his representatives, we too now get to be, by his empowered spirit, empowering spirit, we get to be the ones who go and call, not the righteous, but the sinners, to meet the Lord who can save them, who loves them more than they even think is possible. This is a beautiful story, isn't it? Jesus, may that be true of us at Door of Hope Northeast. May we be those kinds of people. Amen.